0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, ZenCaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the
2: podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
3: Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 53. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about methods in indigenous archaeology. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Daneta, and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. And today we have Carlton Shield Chief Gover back on the show. So... Carlton Shield Chief Gover, as you might remember, is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and a PhD student in anthropology at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he is also pursuing graduate certificates in museum science and indigenous studies. He sits on the board of directors for the Museum of the Pawnee Nation and History Underground and is a committee member of the SAA Committee on Native American Relations. He also hosts three podcasts, two of which are on the Archaeology Podcast Network, A Life in Ruins, Soundbites and Museum Unlocked. So welcome back to the show, Carlton.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be back on the show. Far more comfortable, less nervous uh, (laughs) to be on a podcast.
3: You know, it's funny because I went back and listened to that episode and I did not catch any nervousness.
4: Oh, I was, I, every time I listen to that episode, I cringed because I can tell it in myself that I'm not comfortable. I'm definitely messing around with my hands somewhere. And I'm also not using professional equipment. I'm used, I was using like a gaming headset, if I recall, but now <laughs> I got the whole, whole system.
3: Ooh. Yeah. We were just uh, figuring out right before we started that you've actually at this point done more episodes, quite a bit more episodes than I have between your three podcasts, even though your episode with me here was, was your first it was your first podcasting experience at all, right?
4: Yes, but you know, at with with the other podcasts I do, I always have co-hosts, so I always have people assisting. Whereas yes. I know you, you're you're doing this solo, so <laughs> I get to do. Uh, I have I have division of labor helping me with the other podcasts. and yeah, the uh, this this uh, this podcast, uh, you know, Heritage Voices, that was the uh, impetus for me starting the other thing. This was my first podcast experience, and after we had gotten done recording that. I uh, asked you about how you got started in the APN, and that led to an email with Chris. And then, unfortunately, a Life in Ruins podcast uh, came to the (laughs) APN and has been causing problems ever since.
3: Well, I was going to talk about this at the end, but while we're talking about it, do you want to just introduce your three podcasts?
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so A Life in Ruins and uh, Sight Bites are both on the APN. A Life in Ruins is with two of my really close friends, David Howe and Connor Johnen, who I went to graduate school with at the University of Wyoming. And that one we have, it's like four episodes a month now. We are very busy. And it's just interviewing people in archaeology, anthropology, and science communication, as well as talking about fun topics in archaeology or controversial ones. Like one of our most popular now is uh, episode thirty-eight or thirty-nine, where we talk about the Saruti Mastodon site, and we bring in two Paleo Indian archaeologists to like go through the science with us, talk about the criticisms, and like really delve into it. We also had the uh, who's now I think he he's now the Undersecretary for Museums of Culture. My cousin Kevin Gover. He was the director of NMAI and right after we did that episode, he got promoted. Um, So we had him to just kind of talk to us about, (laughs) I mean, we weren't expecting like wild football stories from like his times at Princeton, but it was, was, that's definitely an interesting episode to see how like a tribal lawyer ended up at the Smithsonian. And then Sight bites was, it started off as a project I did for a class, Dr. Samantha flad, who's now a professor at the university of Colorado Boulder for a final project. She's like, do you want to do a podcast on the Southwest? And I was like, I'd love to do a podcast on the Southwest. And so uh, I did like a five episode mini, Series on Chaco and had like Dr. Steve Lexon, Paul Reed, uh, Rich Friedman, and I, it was co-hosted by a, a graduate student here, one of my close friends, Rob Weiner, who who does Chaco research, and Chris, the producers. Hi, Chris. Uh, asked like me to do it repeatedly to take to you know really do site bites and go to other sites and do like five or six episodes on a site and really get into it. And uh, that's been fun because it's far more academic. We have like sources, like we actually read the literature. And then the last one I did for CU Boulder last summer during COVID, it's called Museum Unlocked and it's hosted by the University of Colorado Boulder. And that was just interviews with personnel at the CU Museum of Natural History, not just anthropologists or even archaeologists. And it's just like what inspired them to become museum professionals. And, you know, how do we inspire the next generation of, uh, you know, museum staff? So it's been fun. So you definitely uh, opened up a box for me by bringing me on to Heritage Voices years ago. And uh, this is where it's led to a lot of caffeine dependency and uh, (laughs) spending money on a lot of recording equipment.
3: You're welcome. (laughs) Well, and I mean, I just I. Free podcasts. I mean, that sounds nuts. I don't know. How are you doing that and a PhD? It's
4: hard. So like, <laughs> I should have been a candidate by now. I'm almost, I almost got my candidacy. I, I promise if my advisors listen to this, um, I'm just working on drafts right now. So by the end of this semester, I'll be a candidate. But honestly, I find podcasting to really continue to motivate me to get my PhD because I'm not just, you know, siloed into my research, right? Like I'm actively talking to other archaeologists, other science communicators, other researchers in general, and learning about what's inspired them to even, you know, get through their PhDs or why they didn't. And it, it just keeps that passion in me going and it, and drives me to continue doing my research because it's like hearing all these success stories and all these experiences is like, yeah, I need to get this done. Um, but at the same time, I'm having a fun time learning about all these other projects. And so... You know, it, it it seems counterintuitive. I know I'm spending all this time on it, but it's really, it's like I get to do this. You know, this is my thing, not the not the school's thing. This is what I enjoy doing.
3: Yeah, no, I totally get that. <laughs> For me, it's between like work and and podcast. It's, it's the same kind of thing in a lot of ways. This is like the fun, just like getting to to sit and listen and hear people's stories and chat and yeah.
4: Yeah, we had to tone it down on A Life in Ruins with the language because we used to be a little vulgar because we didn't (laughs) think it'd get like popular. We were just doing it for a little bit. But then I started getting email like when I was emailing people about like scholarships or jobs like, oh, you're the guy on A Life in Ruins. Ooh. Like I love it. And I'm like, oh wow. I don't know how many times I've dropped the F bomb on that show. And we had to do like a quick course correct with Chris. We were like, we need to we need to censor this. Uh, we're not gonna be cussing anymore because this we're gonna have unexpected consequences if we keep up with this kind of like bro talk.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's amazing like how much it it um comes up like such random moments where it's like oh yeah I listen to your podcast or or I'll be talking to a guest and they'll talk about the experiences they've had on you know after being on the show and like the randomness of of people that have either heard it or it's definitely a different experience
4: yeah you got to be careful because you just don't know you just don't really realize how how far reaching this is yeah
3: Yeah. Putting your voice on
4: the internet can have consequences.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's funny too, because people, I don't know, I'm sure you've experienced this too. It's, um, people really feel like they know you after listening to you on a, on a podcast so many times. And so you'll like have people coming up to you, like they know you and you're like, who are you? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, how do you know so much about me? Like quoting you back to you and things like that.
4: That that has been absolutely creepy. Like I, huh. I totally get it. Yeah, because we're pretty we're pretty prevalent on uh, Instagram. Like I'm active on Instagram, especially, and so is the podcast. We have our own you know Instagram account. We have we have they're not groupies, but we have a, a select. Couple of people that are always talking to us, but mm-hmm. every now and then i'll get an email to my school account asking for help or that they listen to the episode, or
3: yeah, and I mean it's really funny because like obviously, I listen to a lot of podcasts that's how I got into podcasting, and I do the exact same thing, like where I feel like you know I really know the the hosts of the the shows that I listen to regularly, and so it's just funny to like feel what that feels like on the other side. Uh, And I think that's part of the beauty of the, the medium, though. It's like you want people to feel like they're listening in on a personal conversation and that they know you as a person. And it works, obviously, like, again, being on the other side, like I really feel like that. So that's that's just part of of what I do love about podcasting.
4: What was really weird, like today I was grading papers. Because we I had them do a, a paper on the Cerruti on site. And I had three students cite the podcast.
3: That's awesome.
4: And that that was weird. I was like, what? Because I saw like Gover et al. 2021. I was like, why are they citing me? Because I, I published up like a paper this year. I was like, that has nothing to do with ceruti And I went down to the work site and it was like Life Runs podcast episode 39. I was like, oh, okay. This is, <laughs> that's new.
3: That's awesome though. I feel like, so I've been talking to a lot of professors who have been saying that they use heritage voices as assignments in their class, because otherwise, you know, it's a little bit harder to like find indigenous voices for all these different topics. And so they, you know, we'll be talking about Chaco and they'll just pull out the Chaco episode and assign that to their class or, you know, whatever topic it is that they can then relate back to a podcast episode on here. And it's like, that's really cool. I wish I had. I, I wish I had stuff like that when I was a student.
4: Though I know, well, the the rock art class here at Boulder. Your episode with Emily Van Alst was on yeah. their reading re- reading list. Their their sources syllabus? list, I guess. Because <laughs> so it, I, yeah, syllabus. Yeah, that that one.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. So I mean, I know there, there's definitely. I know that's going on, and I'm like super excited for that change in academia that we're starting to see that it's not just like peer reviewed articles anymore now that they're allowing, because I think the SAA changed their, some of their, uh, I don't know if it's stats is the right word, but they allowed more service work to be on your CV and like count. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of seeing, you know, the, the ad expansion of it now that professors are like, you know, read Sapien's blog posts, you know, listen to the archeology span podcast network. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's uh, really important, you know,
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now that apparently we're doing an ad for podcasting (laughs) instead of (laughs) talking about stuff. But hopefully, hopefully, you know, the listeners will enjoy this since, you know, maybe they listen to one or both of the shows. So, you know, if there's if there's any indigenous people out there that are interested in in podcasting, you know, like maybe you're an archaeologist or a cultural anthropologist or land manager or whatever, and you're you're interested in. In becoming a podcaster, co-hosting on this show or whatever, you know, reach out to to Carlton and I and we can always give some some guidance. And yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, (laughs) now that we've used up most of our segment talking about podcasts, (laughs) let's. Let's talk about uh, another media, if you will, which is your upcoming volume that I'm very excited about.
4: Yes. So also another shout out to Emily Van Alts. Me and Emily, back at a bar at SA Albuquerque, that was like last, you know, SA's in person, decided that we should write a, do an edited volume. Well, at first it was going to be just a um, paper session, organized paper session for the SA's for... Um, Austin, but that got canceled. But I guess like University of Florida Press like goes through abstracts and reaches out if they hear a good idea. So we got this email Uh over the summer of 2020 asking like, hey, do you want to talk about a book deal. And we're like, well, I'll talk about a book deal. And that sounds like (laughs) sweet. So me and Emily talked about it and they're like, yeah, we'd love to hear because the the whole purpose of that session was to bring young indigenous scholars, both either recently in tenure track positions or recently on the job market, PhD students, master students, and even undergrads to come in and talk about how they use indigenous archaeology, indigenous ontologies, indigenous science in their research and like lay out a blueprint for how they did it to really illustrate how to combine and how Western science and indigenous knowledge produce better results, better conclusions, better summaries, better interpretations of the archaeological record. Yeah, University of Florida Press loved it and had us come up with a you know abstract, figure the figure all of all the nuts and bolts out. And, uh, you know, because we were really inspired by, you know, like George Nicholas, Keetra um, Sonia Adelaide, and like, and, you know, Joe Watkins, and who have been writing about indigenous archaeology for a while now. And just something that we kind of noticed, it's, it's really theory heavy. Like why? Why is it best practice to do indigenous archaeology? Here's the theory behind it, and we're like, but we need a methods book, right? Like, let's do methods, like something that's not that's targeted towards tipos, NAGPRA officers, undergraduates, you know, graduate students. Like that's the, our target audience, right. is teaching the younger generation of archaeologists on how to apply these things into their research, even if they're indigenous or not, right? Mm-hmm. As the mm-hmm. whole, we look at indigenous archaeology as as a compute, as a community based practice. So yeah, they loved it. And so I think our first draft is due at the end of the month. And I have like three chapters in there that I got to finish up. But yeah, so I'm co-editing it with Emily Van Alst, who's uh, Lakota, myself, Lydia Curlis, who's uh, Nipmuc Nation, Patrick Cruz, who's Okawinge, Honey Constant, who was recently on, Sturgeon Lake First Nation, Saskatchewan, Zoe Eddy, who's a PhD, and he's uh, a Huron Wendat, Ojibwe. Nicholas C. Laluk, who is White Mountain Apache, Ashley Thompson, Red Lake Ojibwe, Maggie Spivey Faulkner, who's a PD, and Aaron Bryan, who's a Absolute Nation. So not only is it just, is it, it's an edited volume like with, with young indigenous archaeologists, but we also are covering a large geographic expanse. Like We didn't want to silo in the Great Plains. We didn't want to silo in the Southwest. We try to get indigenous archaeologists doing different indigenous archaeology across the country. And, you know, I'm doing radiocarbon work. Emily's doing rock art work. Lydia Curless is doing just talking about libraries and archives. You know, so it's not even just archaeology. Like we're talking about a kind of a holistic perspective. And we do have, oh, I almost forgot Sonia Miller and also Kay uh, Matana. And she is uh, Potawatomi and she's looking at indigenous tattooing practices. Mm, cool. So we're like really excited for this book because. We, we hope that it's going to provide a service, not just to other indigenous archaeologists, but those who work in cultural resources management, as well as you know cultural work back with the tribes. So that's how we're writing it, you know, is very much we're trying to like reduce the jargon. We're going to have literally a, like a keyword section with some dictionary terms because we want to write it for, as I said previously, graduate students, undergraduates and Cultural resources folks or, or cultural heritage folks back with the nations, you know? So I'm really looking forward to it. Like, we even have a chapter that's even just talking about like the do's and don'ts of talking about indigenous people on social media. So it's not even just like research, but just best practices that usually you'd have to search JSTOR, Google Scholar for to kind of hit different points to find different people. But we realize there's not one document anywhere that has like, this is why you shouldn't show human remains. This is why before you make an Instagram post about, you know, indigenous people, if you should probably reach out to them and like, you know, just a best practices list for people in the 21st century in a digital world. This is supposed to be published spring of next year from everything I've been told from my advisors and others about edited volumes that it will not be published next spring <laughs> <laughs> And to expect more time for that to happen. But I'm really excited for it. And I really hope it could be of value. To to the field.
3: You know what I love about it. What's that? How many past heritage voices podcast guests are in the in the book? Really? Yeah, like so know, many of I those know, people you I, listen. I, I, <laughs> and, <laughs> I didn't realize that. That's amazing. And um, those that aren't yet, you should come on my podcast. <laughs> We could oh, do like absolutely. a whole series, yes, I, build patient. Yeah,
4: I bet they've talked about this because a lot of these people are doing their thesis or dissertation and explaining their methods behind it. So I'm sure like if you go back to those episodes for those guys, you'll get like the gist of their article. But if you come get the book, you'll get the <laughs> you'll get the blueprints for how, they, how how they did it. And you can you can use it as a, you know, as a foundation for work that you find interesting.
3: Yeah, so basically, go get the book, read it, and then go back and listen to the podcast episodes for more context.
4: Yeah, give a voice to the name.
3: (laughs) And on that note...
2: link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencast and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling
0: up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw.
3: Welcome back to the show. Okay, so we talked about your podcast and we talked about this volume. That's going to be amazing when it comes out. Fingers crossed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Guaranteed. Amazing. What else have you been up to since the last time we talked on this podcast?
4: Yeah, so I think we recorded that episode in January of 2019. I had like just started the University of Colorado Boulder and I hadn't even... Tech defended my thesis yet at the University of Wyoming? Well, that summer I, I defended my thesis. and got my master's uh, a year after Yay. I started my PhD. I don't recommend <laughs> that to anybody. To uh, that was that was grueling, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I narrowed down on what I was going to do for my PhD, which was to. But at first, I thought I was going to expand upon my thesis, which was like a radiocarbon chronology of the Central Plains, which was tied heavily into the oral traditions of the Rapani in Wichita and what they say happened and when. And so I wanted to do more, collect more oral traditions. And I got a scholarship from the Colorado Council Professional Archaeologist uh, of the summer of 2020 to go do my own ethnography. Yeah. Uh, Huge shout out to those guys. Yeah. Yeah. CCPA. Yes, I was. I was. They, they reached out to me. They said, "Hey, you want to apply for this?" And I was like, "Yeah, I like money." <laughs> so. I did that and I got uh, a bunch of equipment for it, which was really nice. Um, awesome. So huge shout out. And I got to present this summer on it. I, I'm nice. making like a, a documentary, I think. It's nuts. That's fun. So I, I did that and I, I figured out what I'm doing for my dissertation, which was a little different. I got into the museum certificate program here at CU Boulder. I've been taking museum courses. I also got in the certificate program here at Boulder for indigenous studies, which has been just amazing to have all these different, what well, was cool about the museums, right? was as an archaeologist, I'm always taught how to take artifacts out of the ground. But that museum perspective was really like, okay, now that they're out of the ground, how do you take care of them? And also Carlton, how do you better take care of them when you pull them out of the field? And I was like, whoa, right, dude. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that stuff. And it was like a more holistic experience thinking about what happened. And then the indigenous side, right, was like, those are the people that are making those things. So I got like the people that made them, archaeology, getting them out of the ground, and how do we curate those in, per- in perpetuity and the ethics and everything. So it this, it's been this amazing past couple of years of learning about the holistic nature of material culture and from different uh, ontologies, right? So that's been a lot of fun. I've got a, a couple articles under my belt. I've gotten into some uh, horse research through uh, CU Boulder Museum with Dr. William Taylor. He's uh, a big horse guy, and that has been focusing on reanalyzing our knowledge of um, Spanish horse dispersal Hmm. in North America, because we're starting to get earlier dates than we thought. But of course, you know, Jessica, you know, who, you know, whose story these uh, radiocarbon dates line up with best. (gasps) Whose? It's the indigenous people. What I know, crazy, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's it's just it's just it's just so funny how this keeps coming up. But yeah, <laughs> there's always been these narratives of of, of when indigenous people got horses, right. and they're not necessarily ignored. But you know, the European account is is predicated on when people saw horses present, mm-hmm. and so we're getting new radiocarbon dates on horses, and they're you know earlier than when they should have them you know not like terribly earlier you can't really have anything earlier than like 1492 but, why what happened um <laughs> well you can in like the Pleistocene, i know the Pleistocene, right <laughs> yeah i mean the horses, i mean the horses are from here but they went extinct here but right. they came back with the spanish right. and um you know that's that's documented right because if you look at the early sports uh horse bits across north america especially in the southwest and great plains and in the intermountain region all the indigenous groups are largely using rawhide in the same shape and manner as the um, Spanish bits, the Spanish horse tack. Mm-hmm. So we're replicating it, but using what we had on hand. So even though like, you know, some of those Spanish horse bits, they have that ring in the mouth mm-hmm. that helps them guide the horse. So if they pull up on the reins, that that, that uh, ring hits the top roof of their mouth. Well, they're doing that with uh, rawhide, you mm-hmm. know, which is still pretty, if, if anyone knows about rawhide, it's, it's pretty hard. So yeah, that's been a fascinating experience and it's really started to make me look in terms of my research and refocusing my research, more of looking at these transitions in time and the culture of indigenous peoples rather than just focusing on migrations. But like, okay, horses are pretty cool. Agriculture is also pretty cool. And so I'm really starting to focus on these major events in indigenous history because these are all really recorded in indigenous oral traditions, like these events, which you can ground, you can look through with archeology. span So that's really kind of expanded my love of archaeology and where I want to focus because it's horse. Everyone loves horses. People love horses more than they do radiocarbon dates. So it's much easier to talk about horses to a crowd than it is talking about C14 data. (laughs) So it has its benefits.
3: So wait, what, what dates are you coming back with?
4: So we actually had one horse and this is a pretty cool one. we got a date on a horse. It's in Omaha territory and it was like early 1600s, I believe. So the the current, the narrative prior, the European narrative is like late 10th, 17th century, they got horses. But then we also, so right. not only was it older, but we did the isotopic analysis out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not from that part of Kansas. It's actually from central Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Like before it died, it was living in Pawnee territory. Mm. And we are like what? And so we were like talking to Matt Reed, who's the TIPO, the Tribal Historic right. Preservation Officer of the Pawnee Nation. We are like talking about it. And like where they found that horse is like a major Central Plains trading center with Pawnees and Omaha's, Ponca's, whoever Kansas would would come to trade. And so if that horse is it's probably not raided, but it looks like, you know, the, the potential narrative for that is that the Pawnee, some Pawnee brought that horse over and traded it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And it's mm-hmm. earlier than When these people were supposed to get it, and then we did this one article that came out. I think it also came out. Was it in the New York Times? It definitely came out in the CU Boulder in in Colorado magazines and newspapers. And that was a reanalysis of of the Lehi horse from Utah. That one was that one was fun to do, just because for a long time they originally dated it. The date was really off, and it said the horse was like fourteen thousand years old, and it's not. So we just confirmed what we we had suspected. And yeah, that was, what's it called? Yeah, the whole thing is Interdisciplinary Analysis of the Leahy Horse, Implications of Hurley Historic Horse Cultures of North America, of the North American West. And that was in American Antiquity. I'm just a co-author, one of many on that one. <laughs> but that was really fun to do because they we're starting to get like emails about Vikings though, because the original article this was published in, it said the horse the, the, the journalist, it's the journalist side, not the peer-reviewed. Right. In the original article from like a decade ago misinterpreted what the archaeologist was saying, that Pleistocene horses were smaller. And so this didn't make sense because it wasn't, you know, it's the size of a regular Spanish horse. And so in the original article the author said, oh, yeah, it's smaller, just like Pleistocene horses, which is what said. But in this new article that came out, the public version, I guess the uh, the article author like read the original and like copied and pasted that and said, yeah, this is weird because it's still like a miniature Pleistocene horse. And we were like, no, no, oh, it's no, not. No. But it was too late because now we started getting people of, of like emailing us talking about how it's a viking icelandic pony and we're just like it's not a viking icelandic pony like no vikings were not here that (laughs) they didn't come to utah stop and it just opened like these whole floodgates of like this is why responsible journalism and science communication needs to be better
3: yeah well that's exciting though because i mean there was an elder that i worked with a lot that you know always talked about how the horses came a good chunk earlier than and what the records actually say and he would have been very very happy to hear this
4: and if you read the spanish accounts they're losing horses left and right like when they try to go into the plains they're not only losing horses they're losing people people just go in a gully and disappear like yeah you know it wasn't just the pueblo revolts that released horses out like they lost horses all the time right and you know a lot of those oral traditions like you said you know <laughs> these indigenous nations are like, what is this? It just comes out of the, the morning mist and you just have this horse there and they've never seen it. they're just like, what just happened? Yeah. yeah. And you see that a lot that horses just show up and they don't know what to do with them. And like what I found really interesting, if you look at the lexicon, like most indigenous nations, their word for horse in their language is somehow associated with dog.
3: Right. Right. Cause before the horse, the dogs were the pack animals
4: right you're absolutely right because it's like oh i guess this is so i think in pawnee we call it new dog Mm -hmm. like that's our word for it (laughs) it's just oh this is the new dog and that's the old dog right and i know a lot of other languages are the same and it's just like okay so i just it's just it's like culturally and you know scientifically it's fascinating but if you look go deeper into the culture like that's the more fascinating part it's like okay this is making way more sense
3: that's cool
4: and horses are from north america so when they got reintroduced they were right at home
3: Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So going back a second, because you, you'd also mentioned oral history stuff with your dissertation and you know, me, you know, as the cultural anthropologist, I I can't let you just like slide that one by. (laughs) Absolutely. So can you talk more about that part?
4: Yeah, so I got I got this scholarship from CCPA. And the whole purpose of it was like, I wanted to go back to Pawnee and I wanted to interview elders and ask specifically about oral traditions regarding either our long walk from Nebraska to Oklahoma or something they might've heard about their parents about, or, about our origins outside of just kind of the books, the Smithsonian records that I've been working with. So I got this scholarship and I went and got a video camera, some uh, lapel mics, like the whole traveling circus. And uh, I was going to postpone it because of COVID uh-huh. and the tribe said, no, you're going to get your butt down here because we don't know if these elders are going to be around after Aww. COVID. I was like, Oh, right. So I went down and my partner, she, she came with me. She was a huge health. I have to give a huge shout out to Lana rock. And so I was able to interview a bunch of elders and I did not get a single oral tradition story regarding migration. In fact, what I came across was basically I documented these stories of cultural genocide and putting these pieces together. The people that were culturally knowledgeable in the Pawnee nation did not go to the residential school in Pawnee. They went to a different school that wasn't the residential school. And this created this space that those same families that didn't go to the residential school are still the families that are doing cultural traditions, morning feasts, Wichita visitations. And so like, that whole question I had just kind of came into a totally different project, and trying to piece together, okay, what happened to my nation once we got sent to Oklahoma, and more specifically after the Dawes Act and uh, the Indian boarding school project, because mm-hmm. I, I just came across a completely different thing that once I was talking about it with the TIPO, with my uh, my the cultural division director is my uncle, and one of the cultural staff, we all kind of sat down, kind of synthesizing that, and like we've all they've all kind of known that. And then we wanted to explore it more, more fully because that's an important thing that we should know. So that's how that project happened. It just totally turned on to a life of its own. I'm making like a mini documentary out of it because I'm going to present it at CCPA. That was a part of the requirements for that scholarship. So I have like... Th- five hours of interview footage with a bunch of different people. And I also got like fun stories I asked that once I realized I probably wasn't getting oral tradition data. and that was the first thing I asked. Then I kind of asked them about like non-sensitive cultural practices that we still utilize and the, and the perseverance of Pawnee culture. And... So I didn't want it just to be like super sad. I wanted to talk about like other things that could give us hope. And so I got like members of the tribal government to interview and it was really nice to get back home. And I hadn't been in Pawnee for a while. I'd made a couple visits, but I hadn't really, you know, when you go to dances, you, you're hanging out with your family you're not, you know, you're not hanging out with everybody else most of the time. So it was like really nice to see a lot of these people because it was, you know, it was funny that a lot of these elders were like, Oh, I remember you when you were a kid and I know who your family is. And so that it was really nice. And so I didn't get the data I wanted, but that's not a bad thing. Cause it, you know, that's the beauty of these collecting world tra- or this data is that you find new questions. So it created a whole different project that I'm going to finish up and it's going to be, it was completely done under the supervision of the Pawnee nation cultural resource division TIPO was there for a couple of them to help help these conversations go and provide authority. So once I'm done with this documentary, it's actually going to go to the cultural resources division for them, and they're going to review it, make sure it looks good. I got everyone's names right, and then it'll be presented at CCPA conference. So it was a lot of fun. I'm a little solemn, but also um, I learned a lot about my people that I hadn't really thought of before and really that impact of the residential schools.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. First, I'm glad I'll get to to watch the documentary through CCPA. And second, I mean, I agree with you 100% that good ethnography is an iterative process. And you know, you got to go where people lead you because sometimes what you think is important, or, you know, you might be asking the wrong question in the beginning and people, like if you let people lead you, that's where you get to the stuff that's that's really important and what actually matters to the community. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. I know it's it's disappointing yeah, it, or you know what I mean, it's not necessarily what you expected, but but that's that's a sign of, yeah. of good work.
4: Yeah. I mean the tribe themselves said like, dude, we wish you were here forty years ago. Cause like if you would have done this work back in the nineteen eighties, you would have had what you needed, but you know, 40 years have passed and those people that would have known those stories have have passed on now. Mm -hmm. And this was all an extension of, I did a talk about my thesis at the Pawnee Nation, the scariest talk I ever did in my life because I was so nervous that I was going to mess up. And uh, that whole trying to do that work was an inspiration. There was a man, um, his name is Tom Evans, and he was kind of like our Pawnee historian. And he knew so much, did so much NAGPRA work. And he saw my talk and he said, carlton it's really glad to see you home i'm really happy of the work you're doing i want to talk to you because i have a lot of information for you and i said absolutely tom you know let's let's set a date i got to work on this phd and you know he was an elderly man i was like let me come back for the summer and we'll do this um and then tom died two months later
3: no and that was
4: just like lost and so i yeah. And that was, that was back in the winter of 2019 before things really went off. And so, um, when I got offered to apply to that CCPA and I, I they, you know, I, I asked what I could do and they're like, well, you could do ethnography that thinking about Tom drove me to write that and do that work because I realized really quick, like my elders are passing away. It doesn't matter when I finish this PhD or not, like this is important stuff that needs to be done. So even if it's just a janky camera, at least get it done. So I've done a first part of that. And the tribe wants me to come back and interview more people. And uh, that's, that's a priority for me when I have the, have, when I'm going to, when I can do that. So it got on the tribe's radar as well, because we've seen what's happened to indigenous communities all across the country as a, as a result of COVID. So, um, we put in a, wrote a grant for ATOM to, to get some recording equipment down at the culture resource division so we could just do it on site. So you know, fingers crossed for that.
3: I mean, and and the thing is that, you know, sometimes after you're you're doing this community engagement, the community will keep having these conversations after you're gone. Like I'm thinking, for example, of us going to a community event and presenting about a project and I was talking to the cultural resource person for that tribe not too long ago and she said the community, like she still gets people coming up to her and talking to her about our booth. So, you know, even if it's not even just that time that you did or the the interviews themselves, it's, you know, there will be continued conversations within the community. You know, you may have like those conversations may spark additional memories later having those conversations can have an important impact for the community even more than it than it looks like just if you're looking at the the videos for example.
4: Yeah, that's the hope and that's how these things go. Yeah. Yeah. As you said.
3: Yeah, or uh, you know, people may get more comfortable too, like okay, they they remember you when you were a kid now, like you they've done one interview with you, you know, maybe they were a little nervous in front of the camera like but maybe next time, you know. Mm-hmm. So
4: yeah, you know, I never expected to, to. Yeah, I never expected to walk back in and be like, hey, I'm Carlton Gover. Come <laughs> do this random, wacky archaeology work. Right. Like I, As you said, like, you know, there's there's a process to it. Like I haven't lived in Pawnee for ever. I've always just visited and I've lived on different Indian reservations. You know, my family name only goes so far in the community because there's so many of us. And uh, that's what, you know, the work I do is that's why I do a lot of presentations and work with the community, because at some point I have to earn their trust. Right. And that's for anybody, indigenous or not, you need to earn the trust of the community, even if you're part of it or not. You know, this isn't the work I do is not for me. I do it for my people.
3: Right. Well, on that important note, we're going to take our second break.
1: Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
3: Okay, so we're back from our break. And another thing that we talked about quite a bit in the last episode where you were here was you being on the the Pawnee Museum Board. And you know it was all kind of new when you were talking last time and you were you were working on on some different things. So could you give us some updates what's what's happened with the museum board?
4: Yeah. So the Museum of the Pawnee Nation Board of Directors. It's all volunteer cast. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a museum that's in an old Wiggly Wiggly. Yes. With no empo- with no employees. But uh, out awesome. of that project that we'd been working on, things were a little a little stagnant. Try just trying to get new collections and just dealing with with what was going on. And our dream had always been to make like a new cultural center. And in the fall of 2019, well, really the late summer 2019, we got this project with. A Tom and OSU, Oklahoma State University School of Architecture. It's like this grant. I'm not quite sure the details because I, I, I didn't set it up. But what happened was, is we uh, worked with the OSU senior design projects and they had a competition, their senior architecture students to design a cultural center. Cool. I and mean, it was a crazy process. We had all these students, we had community meetings of what we wanted. And it was like, it was a fun thought exercise is how I looked at it. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, for a cultural center, it usually takes like a team of professional architects right. years. And it was like one student right. who didn't have their degree quite yet. in like eight weeks. Right. <laughs> so, you know, give and take there, but we've got some pretty cool designs and the, ATOM came back and they started this new cohort process of trying to get small tribes without any museums or smaller tribes, like the pro, the chance to build their own cultural center. And we got and we, we applied, got into this cohort with uh, the ATOM, which stands for like the Alliance of Tribal Libraries, Archives and Museums, I think.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
4: Association, maybe instead of alliance. And uh, so we're with a bunch of other groups. And we have these like bi-weekly meetings on how to design a cultural center, what we want in the whole process and the budget. And like the Pawnee Nation has been like, yeah, let's do this. And we're like, sweet. What about money? (laughs) And they're just like figure it out. So we're still a volunteer board, uh, and a board of directors is not supposed to be, uh, you know, designing a new cultural center. But you know, you do with what you got, and so that's what we've been doing for over a year now: is working with the community, working with ATOM, IMLS, and other granting agencies to start piecing together money to help. Build us a new cultural center. So, we actually got to pull out a plot of land in Pawnee, Oklahoma to build it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like 100 something makers. And so, we're just right now, we're still figuring out our, uh, our process. Well, not figuring out the process. What is that? There's a word for it. We're doing our action plan and still getting community feedback is like, what exactly is it going to be? Right. Mm Because it can't just be a museum. It has to generate income. And we want to incorporate our language revitalization classes, partner with the tribal college there to maybe do a museum, uh, bring in a museum studies associates into the program. So. I just got reelected to the board or reappointed, I guess is what it is. The tribal council has to say if you're on or not, I just got reappointed and our board is great. We have um, everyone on there has graduate degrees and six out of seven of us have degrees, either in museums or in anthropology. And like we have uh, as, as our tribal president likes to call us a, a crackerjack team <laughs> to get this done. And so, uh, yeah. Um, so we're, we're really looking forward to it. We're just working with the tribe on getting the money to build it. The Pawnee Nation in general has created a Evening Star Fund, which is a, a group which actually includes the Undersecretary for Museums and Culture to uh, help fundraise for not just the museum, but other projects. And But the museum is a pri- is a priority. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm seeing it as a long-term employment goal that once this is going to be like a six or seven year process right before it actually opens. So I'm looking at this as a long-term investment on my part that maybe will give me the opportunity to come and, and live in Pawnee and do and and work there, which has always been a goal of mine. So that's it, and we we meet like to at least twice a month to discuss moving forward. And it's it's a lot of work, you know. We're all I'm the only archaeologist, but you know we got curators and collections managers. We're not really trained for museum design and planning and. It's, it's been a marathon of not only being a PhD student, running three podcasts and doing other things, but also designing a museum. I'm extremely busy, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because it's very important to me. So, and it it is a marathon. So I have no, I'm not in a rush. Things will happen on their own time, but yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, I'm excited that I think last time we talked, I think our main concern was like trying to get new carpet and maybe some new exhibitions. And now we're talking about like a whole new cultural center. So big changes.
3: Yeah. Well, and how did that, how did you get the plot of land?
4: Uh, the tribe set it aside. So it's on the reservation. Okay. And, uh, we told the tribal business council what we were doing and they were excited and we're like, well, what about land? And they're like, we got a plot for you. And, uh, so we have a plot. Cool. Um, that's set aside. Which so we got we got we got one thing out of the way. Now it's uh, and we're going to use the designs from the OSU students as you know inspiration.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: It was kind of funny. I found like a long lost cousin because we're like looking at people that design cultural centers, mm-hmm. and it just so happens like a second cousin of mine designs cultural centers, and he's huh. in Oregon, and I hadn't seen him in years, and his name popped up. And uh, <laughs> so, part of part of being on this board of finding like family that I haven't seen in so long, and he was he was super excited. He's like, "Yeah, I'd love to be part of this." Yeah, but he lives that out there in like so Portland funny. or something. He's like an artist, and it's just like small world.
3: Well, I mean, that's nice, first of all, because that's a big thing for museums usually, just finding the plot of land. So it's mm-hmm. nice that that's one check mm-hmm. off your list. But anyway, you've also been been doing some stuff with some other museums, and I'd like to. To hear more about that,
4: yes. So I've been working with, guess I might be working for really the um, CU University of Colorado Museum of Nature and Science here in Boulder. I did my first project with them. I was hired as a research assistant, and that was to help build and create their new zoo archaeology lab under Dr. William Taylor. And so I got to build a lab, which was really cool to get the collections and kind of orient how what we wanted to represent and like what we wanted our department to focus on. And so of course it was going to be, you know, intermountain West plains and Southwest. And we had to get collections that, that showed that. And Dr. Taylor is, uh, he's a horse researcher. So of course we're doing horses. And, uh, part of that we got, <laughs> he hooked us up with a bison, um, cause he's from Montana and there's, there's a purebred bison ranch up there. And, uh, they had an old female that we bought and, uh, they put her down. And then we also did like uh ballistic weapons research with her, with a and bows, high def cameras, slow or high resolution cameras, slow-mo cameras. It was a whole really cool thing to show the lethality engineering behind indigenous populations, um, hunting, uh, kit here in the Americas, put her in a bud box where I still have like, I think I'm pretty sure I still have a couple dozen pounds of bison, ground bison in my deep freeze from that experiment slowly chipping away at it. We took 3D photogrammetry of her before and after of, yeah, we did it before the experiment, after the experiment, after we skinned her, after we butchered her and recreated that in a 3D model. And then we also used the ballistics data from the cameras to actually really show... Penetration and the ballistics that was a wh- amazing project through our bug box. And now we have her skeleton on in our collection. But on top of that, I've been doing a lot of um, 3d scanning work and photogrammetry work on existing collections, not just ZOARC, but uh, material culture as well. And 3d printing to make collections more accessible between museums and with indigenous communities. So we can share that data or you can manipulate that data and when the 3d printing part of it, right, that's the cooler part. Cause that makes these objects, which are usually behind display cases that you can't touch. If you can 3d print them, you can have the public interact with these things, right? It's been really fun. And I've, I've really gotten into also accessibility through that whole project. There's an archeologist out here in Colorado. Her name is Amelia doll. She's on the uh, council of death, culture here in, in the Amer- in the United States. And she's a young archaeologist who's deaf. And really, she came to one of my talks and I had to get an interpreter for her. We, we got a chat afterwards and she really opened my eyes to how inaccessible science and especially archaeology is to communities who are deaf, deaf plus blind. And so part of my work in the museums has been to make things more accessible through like exhibits through virtual reality and augmented reality, which also translates to you can incorporate more uh, information on exhibits to existing exhibits, for instance. So part of augmented reality, if you have your phone, you can go up to an exhibit display and you can have it translated to Spanish or a different language. So you can bring other people in who aren't primarily English speakers. But what I've done with it, the CU Museum has developed an exhibit that would allow you just scan a barcode on the display and on your phone pops up an interview with an indigenous person. So we've had a couple tippos who talk about horses in their culture and the meaning of horses or the meaning of the horse tack. So you don't have to spend like a bunch of money to redo an entire exhibit. You can use these augmented reality platforms to supplement and change your exhibits. And also do online exhibits. That's awesome. It's been absolutely fascinating to be involved in the museum world, to and I've taken this to the you know especially with the accessibility issues, like bringing it to the next step with archaeology and and realizing a lot of that stuff. And because you know the, it, with museums, the part of the what I love about archaeology is I get to touch things. Museums, you really don't get to touch things. And right. so really these 3D technologies and augmented reality, they, they change things and they make museums far more fun. And this was all based, a traveling museum in Mongolia, which retrofitted a bus with like dinosaur exhibits to travel all around rural Mongolia. And they used iPads and augmented reality to get the kids engaged with it. It was just fascinating
3: to apply these things. So devil's advocate here. With uh, yes. the, like, 3D printing parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, like, the concern would be that if they can touch the, the replica, that, like, people won't, like, cognitively think of the replica as, like, different from the real thing. You know what I mean? And, like, that mm-hmm. it would be okay to, um you know, handle these objects in that same way in, you know the real world. So have you guys, have you right. guys talked about that or any ways that that could be addressed? I guess
4: that has never come up and I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I'm going to write that down because that was a concern <laughs> that we hadn't even realized yet, <laughs> which is that that brings up points, you know, like when you 3d print, you know, it's not going to be the full size object. So if you think of like a horse school, you don't want to 3d print a whole horse school. You'd make it like maybe chipmunk sized and it's going to be the color of the plastic, you know? And so the, The way that we've looked at it is to have kids are far more tactile. They like to touch things. And also for we looked at it for people that are blind who can't see these objects. They see through their hands. You know, that's that's a primary motivator. Mm -hmm. The ethicality of are we training a young generation to touch everything if they see it in in nature? You know, we have a problem in archaeology with looters or not necessarily looters, but looters and others picking things out of the ground and they lose their context. And so, yeah, maybe we just have to have the docents or what we do with the museum, museum is, you know, hampered, hampered home. Like if you see these things in nature, don't touch them, mm-hmm. but you can hear with the, so I think that's great. And I'm going to write that down because that's an excellent point.
3: Well, and it maybe Something depends that haven't thought about yet on the object too. Like, you know, maybe certain objects are okay, but not, you know, a ceremonial object or oh absolutely not yeah right
4: <laughs> no we were thinking more in line of like yeah we're thinking more in line of like projectile points mm-hmm. horse bones bones of that nature nothing like bundles or sacred objects i don't think c boulder has a really good reputation of being very culturally aware and of of indigenous values mm-hmm. like we would never like re 3d print a pipe or something i don't we wouldn't even scan a pipe right so i mean i think that's like a whole other conversation of like the do's and don'ts what we can put on a digital form because i talked to like a NAGPRA lawyer about like 3d scanning objects and like we haven't thought of that and so they have to go back they'd have to go back and look as to like where does this fall into but no when we're talking about 3d scanning we're I'm mostly talking about projectile points bones of animals and maybe uh pots so like, you know, you take the pot fragment and you can make like a whole pot and you know, it's easier to uh <laughs> you know, you don't you definitely don't want uh, children playing with a 600-year-old grayware central plains pot, right? But mm-hmm. plastic go for it. Yeah. So, but never funerary objects. I don't I think that that would break a lot of Museum ethics that we do have here. But those are great conversations to bring up because I wasn't even, you know, it's easy to talk with you on Heritage Voices on like things that you can do in archaeology coming from the same background of like, yeah, of course I wouldn't 3D print a bundle. Um, but yeah, no, I'm glad you brought it up for maybe some of your other listeners that, you know, those are, that's my emic perspective of, of these things. But yeah, right. never cultural stuff. And it's still work in process and, uh, Not many other museums have done this, so we're definitely kind of in the lead. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely going to hit these kinks. And so that is an excellent point.
3: Right. Well, and even, you know, um, with the natural stuff, you know, I'm thinking of that there's been cases of tribes where I work with that, you know, things like bison skulls can be considered... NAGPRA objects, or even if it's an animal or something like that, there may still be like things to think about there. But yeah, so that, um, and I, th- I think the Smithsonian, from what I remember when we were in DC for the SAAs, was doing some similar stuff with 3D printing and communities mm-hmm. appreciating being able to get 3D prints of of certain things. And I don't remember too much about the details, but maybe, maybe it's available somewhere, I know that you're working on at least one other museum project and we we only have a few minutes left. So let's, let's get to that.
4: Yes. So real quick, I'm working with the CU Museum, the National Park of Mesa Verde, and over 20 descendant communities on the Choppin Mesa Renovation Project. And that is a collaborative, not not consultative, collaborative, meaning the indigenous communities have been involved in the entire process from the beginning with the national parks, as well as Crow Canyon, on renovating the Chopin Mason Museum at Mesa Verde to bring it. it's rather old and some of those God needs it. Uh, exhibits are <laughs> are you know haunting and so <laughs> we're working with the with the descendant communities and the parks to to create a new museum that is more representative of the indigenous people as well as really showcases why Mesa Verde is so grand and I've been really happy to be a part of that. My role in this project has mainly been during our group like conferences or meetings to run workshops and, and provide information back to the tr- uh, university, um, the group there. Like kind of do's and don'ts of working with indigenous people, just best practices. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm definitely not a huge. I don't have a huge role in this. I'm very much supportive, but it's been really awesome to be a part of that. I, there was a guy, I forget his name was from Crow Canyon. And I, I, he recognized my name from this podcast. That is awesome. He said, Oh, do you know Jessica?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I do. And he was like, yeah, I'd heard your episode on her. And he's like, he, she lives around here. And I was like, Oh really? No way. It was, that was, that was fun. I God, what was his name? Uh, and that's where I also met Tim Wilcox. Uh, yes. and so, and that, that's been really cool to see all these different people in the same room. And we're all coming with different perspectives about why we love Mesa Verde, and it's been, it's been, it's. I find myself very fortunate to have been asked to participate in, in that project. So I got a lot of, I have so many honeypots I got my hands in, and at some point I need to say no and finish this PhD. Um, that's just how it goes. But I'm having a lot of fun. I'm doing a lot of different things, and I'm I'm really hoping that uh, my work and the work that I'm I'm participating in will be fruitful to some people or inspire, inspire others into getting into archaeology, anthropology, museum studies, or what have you.
3: Yeah. Okay. So we have the, the volume that people will be eagerly anticipating. We have the three podcasts of yours. Is there anything else that you want to refer people to before we close out
4: yeah if you want to I, I post a lot on instagram you can find me it's at pawnee archaeologist i do a lot of like plains indigenous stuff there as well as science communication and it's also just a good way to hit me up because i have like email anxiety that definitely goes to social media when people hit me up i have to respond so yeah if you want to learn more have any questions feel free to find me on instagram or if you just look me up carlton shield chief gover you can find me on the CU Boulder anthro page and send me an email
3: all right. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. We really appreciate having you.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me back on. It's, it's like coming back to my roots. It's oh. great.
3: <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at com slash voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share it with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. Or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, Thank you to my co-host Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
2: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
1: Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no
3: such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw